Joel Brand, thank you so much for being with us on the show. Welcome. It's really a pleasure to, to have you on. My pleasure. So I'd love really maybe just for you to share a bit about yourself, you know, maybe your professional journey of, of how you rose to be in the role that you are now as senator. Well, my first interest in public service was really from watching my grandmother. She was a young woman who never had the chance to go to college, but mm. was a secretary in the state legislature in Albany. And she noticed like 75 years ago that there were very few women elected to public office, but she knew a lot of women were interested in what was happening at the legislature. So she engaged those women, particularly the other secretarial and support staff, and got them involved in politics. And together, they started working on campaigns. They made sure that candidates understood their values and what they cared about, made sure that the women knew how to organize and to help candidates that they liked win. And so she spent a ton of time doing campaigns as a young woman and I just remember growing up and her bringing us to campaign rallies, to campaign events that, you know, women stuffing envelopes for events that were coming up door to door, lots of basic grassroots organizing. And so I had such a fond impression, public service and even electoral politics because of her. That's what made me aspire to running for office someday. And when I ran for Congress, I really used all the lessons she taught me as a young girl and focused on grassroots organizing, making sure that we knocked on all the doors and made all the phone calls. And as a consequence, my first house race was a two-to-one Republican district that we were able to win through Democratic organizing. That's what got me started in politics. Well, it's nice to hear that both of our mothers were mentors. Yes, obviously, you know, I work with my so. mother still today, so it's it's great to have that. You know, sometimes you can't forget what you learn in childhood turns you into who you are as an adult. Very much so. So I know the military, military personnel, veterans is a big, important issue for you. And I'd love for you to talk about how you plan to continue advocating for military justice reform to ensure fairness and accountability within the military legal system. Well, this started probably 10 years ago, and I met with a lot of service members who had been sexually assaulted. And then when they mm. reported it, they were disbelieved. And in some instances, they were also retaliated against for coming forward with their stories. And the more and more I delved into the challenges of this, the more I realized is that the system within the military was deeply broken. The people who were deciding whether a crime had been committed and deciding whether to prosecute were commanders. And as you know, the chain of command in the military is inviolate. It's very important for good order and discipline. It's very important for military missions. And when a lower level commander said what he thought happened, it didn't matter what the victim said. It was always he said versus she said. And unfortunately, the women or the victim were chronically disbelieved and the cases weren't being investigated. They weren't going forward and they weren't being prosecuted. And out of approximately 200,000 cases every year, 1% were ending in conviction. It's such a low rate. So I started working with advocates and legal scholars and experts about military justice. And the solution was to take that decision about whether a crime was committed and whether a case should be prosecuted, take it out of the chain of command and give it to a trained military prosecutor who had no skin in the game, who had no bias. And that's the law we ultimately passed last year. And now our mission is to make sure that they actually implement this new law so that you have a more professionalized system, you have a more unbiased neutral system, and it's supposed to go into effect in January. So my job is to monitor it, to make sure it's actually implemented properly, and to make sure that the scourge of sexual harassment and sexual assault declines. 
That's good to hear. That's great to hear. But let's talk a little bit about gun violence. It's a huge issue across the country, no, no question. What legislative measures are you currently working on to help combat gun trafficking and enhance efforts to keep firearms out of the hands of those who pose a risk? Well, interestingly, when I was first appointed to the Senate, when Hillary Clinton became Secretary of State, our governor appointed me, and I realized that I really needed to focus on issues around the state that I hadn't been a leader on, and one was what we can do to end gun crime. And so I traveled around the state, talked to parents, and talked to family members who had lost loved ones about what had happened. And what I realized pretty quickly is that law enforcement needed more tools. They needed to be able to go after these gun traffickers that were bringing guns from out of state and selling them directly out of a truck to a gang member or a criminal Mm. without any chance of a background check. And one of the families I met with was the family of a young woman named Naisha. And she was killed when a stray bullet hit her when she was at a party just before graduation. Uh, with her peers. She was 17 Mm. years old. She was on her way to college and her life was cut short. And so we wrote a bill after her, the Niasia Prior Yard anti-gun trafficking bill. And we just passed that bill last year. And that bill will give law enforcement tools to go after these traffickers. They're federal crimes now. They have stiff penalties up to 25 years for traffickers and kingpins. And they've already arrested dozens of traffickers. They've already confiscated thousands of weapons. And every time we confiscate a weapon, it's one less gun that can be used in these gun crimes that end in so many innocent people dying. So we are making huge progress under this law. And I'm going to keep track of it to make sure we actually keep prosecuting the traffickers and confiscating weapons. We also need to ban the assault weapons in the large magazines. We also need more thorough background checks. I'm working very hard to flip the House of Representatives so that we could actually pass more legislation that protects families from gun crime and, and gang members and criminals that get too easy access to weapons. Well, it's great to hear that you got that passed because it doesn't seem easy to get gun bills passed, and even if they're common sense. so Yeah. Well, I paired with a conservative Republican, John Cornyn from Texas, and we worked on this legislation for many years. And it was just this bipartisan moment last year where common sense, bipartisan ideas were voted on. And a lot of my big bills actually got passed last year because of it, because we had both the House and Senate. So if you had bipartisan support in both chambers, they were likely to be voted on. And all these big bills that I was fighting for for a long time actually got passed. Yeah, well, I'd love you to talk maybe, I mean, I assume this one might be easier to get bipartisan support, but the PACT Act bill to help veterans access health care benefits. Tell us about that bill and, you know, what impact that potentially has on the lives of veterans. So a lot of our veterans who have served in the war on terror and even before were exposed to horrible toxins. People who served in Afghanistan and Iraq, when they served, they didn't have basic sanitation. And one of the things that our military has typically done worldwide is they dig huge holes, they throw all their garbage in it, and then they light it on fire with jet fuel. That creates such a cocktail of toxins. It's not dissimilar from what happened on 9-11. And so the men and women who are serving, who are exposed to these burn pits, were dying of the same cancers. Hmm. And so we, with the coalition of the 9-11 first responders, advocated on the Hill For two years, to get a bill that would comprehensively cover all exposures to make it automatic so these service members didn't have to prove what chemical was in the 
burn pit and that which chemical caused which cancer, they would just have a presumption that if they were exposed, they would be covered. And that's what the bill said. So for all the burn pit exposures and other toxic exposures over the last 50 or 60 years, they're all covered. And it's going to cover 3.5 million veterans who we believe have been exposed. So far, more than 26,000 New Yorkers have filed claims and many thousands more are eligible. And so far, the PACT Act has already helped over a half a million veterans nationwide get the care that they've already earned. We believe 3.5 are eligible, so we still have to get the word out. But so far, so good. We're making progress. Yeah. I mean, that's what I was just going to say is I'm happy that you're sharing because I'm sure it's just about communicating it to a lot of these veterans. So for people who have been exposed to any toxin, you can go to the va.gov and they have a slash resources slash the PACT Act and your VA benefits. You can go directly to that link to get resources. And if you're still having trouble, you can also just email my office at casework, C-A-S-E-W-O-R-K at jillabrand.senate.gov. So you can get help both ways. Terrific. Well, let's talk about the 9-11 victims as well, because, you know, people are still suffering from the after effects and and the health impacts from the 9-11, from first responders to those that were at the site. I know that you had success in securing benefits through the National Defense Authorization Act. Talk about what other ongoing efforts are going on to make sure that the well-being and health of those that were there and being affected by it are still in place. So the 9-11 health and compensation bill we put in place, we got it the first one done about, it was probably about 12 years ago. And we put into place a law that says if you were a first responder on 9-11 or after 9-11, or if you were a community member that lived at Grand Zero, you have access to full health coverage for any disease you may get. We also had a compensation portion. So if you passed, your family would get compensated for the loss of your first responder spouse or community member spouse or family member. And we've been refining that bill every five years since to make sure it covers everybody. This year, most recently, we passed coverage to make sure the people exposed to toxins at Shanksville, Pennsylvania, as well as the Pentagon were also covered. Mm. And we also made sure we had coverage for military service members who were deployed to go to do the cleanup at the Pentagon. And Shanksville because they weren't covered either. So the bill that we're trying to pass in this year's defense bill covers those three groups and also gives a little more money because the cost or the inflation of healthcare has been higher than the inflation of other things. And so we need more healthcare money in the fund because inflation has been higher than expected. So we need about $3 billion more to close all those holes. This year, we might get something like $680 million. Uh, but we still have to keep working to get the whole $3 billion, and I'm going to keep doing that. Terrific. Let's talk a little bit about the advancement of the Equal Rights Amendment to really ensure gender equality through support of the ERA Now Resolution. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So most people understand the Equal Rights Amendment was something suffragists tried to pass 100 years ago, <laughs> that they said women should not be discriminated based on their gender. Mm -hmm. They wrote an equal rights amendment, but it's not part of the Constitution yet. And what the Constitution requires is two things has to happen. You have to have ratification by three quarters of the states, and you have to pass it in both houses of Congress by two thirds in two Congresses. The votes by Congress happened in the 70s. We got that done in the 70s. 
at 71 and 72. And we got the state ratification done by 2020. It happened. Virginia was the last state to do it. Hmm. That was during the Trump administration. And so the Trump Office of Legal Counsel issued a memo saying, well, it doesn't matter that you did the two things. You didn't do it fast enough because there was a timeline in the preamble to the amendment in the preliminary language, not in the actual amendment itself. And so they said you didn't do it fast enough. So it's not valid. I think that's wrong as a matter of law. If the timeline is not in the actual amendment that was ratified by three quarters of the states, it's not relevant. It's not constitutionally binding. So that deadline is irrelevant because it wasn't in the actual law that the states ratified. Second, an OLC memo, an Office of Legal Counsel memo issued by a prior administration or even issued by this administration, it's just advice. It's not binding. And in the past, if somebody's issued an OLC memo that's not accurate or not correct, the next administration can rescind it. We rescinded, for example, the torture memos that were issued by the Bush administration during the Obama administration. Even the Biden administration has rescinded its own OLC memos when the laws change or when they think they have a better view of something. So my view is, and what my resolution says, is that the ERA can be signed and published by the archivist now, that the OLC memo for the Trump era is irrelevant. It's not dispositive. It's not binding. I've asked this administration to rescind that memo and issue a new one, but it can be signed and published regardless because an archivist doesn't work for an administration, doesn't work for the Department of Justice. It's an administrative job, and they're supposed to sign and publish as soon as the two things happen, the three-quarters ratification by states and the two-thirds passage by both houses. So we should have the, the 28th Amendment now, and, it, and I'm, I'm calling on the archivist to sign and publish, and... Absent that, I'm calling on the Biden administration to rescind the Trump administration OLC memo, issue a new one, and say that the time limit is not valid because it wasn't in the constitutional amendments language. So would it take the archivist either signing it or a the presidential act? All it needs is the archivist signing a publish, and it would be our amendment. Got it. Because she is not beholden to any president or any Office of Legal Counsel. She's given her constitutional duties uniquely, and it's just to sign and publish when the two things that Article 5 of the Constitution requires are completed, and they've been completed since 2020. Interestingly, this 27th Amendment took 203 years to become the amendment. It was written by James Madison, and Mm -hmm. some college kid in the 90s realized that it only needed a couple more states, and so he got it done and the archivist just signed and published when it was done. Interesting. And Congress didn't want him to because it was about pay raises and they didn't like the way it was worded or something. And he said, too bad, I don't work for you, and signed and published it. So it's really a legitimate legal theory. And I think the case law is wrong. And I think the Office of Legal Counsel memo is also wrong. Well, it'll be interesting to follow. We'll keep our eyes on that one. Do you want to talk about what it would mean if it, it did pass? Oh, Sure. So one of the reasons why an equal rights amendment being passed today would have a real impact on people's lives is that equal rights amendments have been used in states to protect reproductive freedom. In fact, one state has already said, because it had an equal rights amendment, that applying some of the Dobbs decision to their state was unconstitutional because of their ERA. So I believe if we had a national ERA, 
it would strengthen our argument that if women don't have reproductive freedom and can't make these life and death decisions, they're not equal. They don't have equality under the law. They're not able to have bodily autonomy. They're not able to make decisions about something that could result in the end of their life. And I think that is supported by legal cases. So hopefully if we have ever have an ERA, it strengthens our ability to fight for equality. Even the Dobbs decision said there's no constitutional protections for women in the constitution. So yeah, that's right. So we need an ERA. And if we had an ERA, then maybe we could roll back some of the Dobbs era reasoning. So this has a lot of ramifications potentially. Sure does. Well, we'll be watching this for sure. I know that you've gotten involved and there's been a lot of, you know, news and, you know, people feeling a little outraged in terms of stock trading by government officials and you've really been looking to end it. And and I'm curious like what challenges are you encountering and and how do you plan to address them? So, I and others passed a law 10 years ago that mandated Congress could not engage in insider trading. They couldn't use their non-public information to buy and sell stocks. And as a remedy for that, we required disclosure that they had to disclose every stock trade over $1,000, period, for Mm -hmm. disclosure and transparency and accountability. And we figured that would give the SEC the information they needed to actually prosecute insider trading because I think there's a lot of insider trading going on. That was 10 years ago. Today, the data is terrible. One in three members of Congress are doing stock trades. One in seven are not disclosing their stock trades. There's an estimate that last Congress, there were 3,700 stock trades reported by members of Congress from 2019 to 2021 that potentially posed conflicts of interest. But the real kicker is this one. 17.5% is the average amount by which members of Congress stock portfolios outperform the S&P 500. (laughs) Wow, that's a miracle. So there's no way members of Congress are smarter than average people. No way. And so I believe they're engaging in insider trading. So we now want to ban stock trading by members of Congress, their spouses, and dependent children. We want it to apply to the White House and the senior staff in the administration. The executive branch is just as bad. One in five senior federal officials who held stock in companies that were lobbying their agencies 11,000 trades reported by senior federal officials between 2020 and I just think during 2020, which is far more than any other time period. And we believe a lot of the senior federal officials own stocks in industries that they are actually regulating. So we need to ban it for both Congress and the, the people who are in charge of the administration. Sounds like a no-brainer, but I guess the people that you're asking to pass it are, you know, making a lot of money for it. So it must be a yeah, different Yeah, they don't want to do it. But my co-lead on this is Josh Hawley, another conservative Republican, because there's always common ground between mm-hmm. people, regardless of political parties. And I'm optimistic that we get a vote on it, we will pass it. Good. I'm happy to hear it. Let's talk a little bit about age discrimination. You know, I obviously seniors are big voters, they're active in their communities, they're a big part of our readership, you know, community newspapers. What inspired your advocacy for an age discrimination bill? And what's your plan to address age-based discrimination in all different sectors? Well, you know, we have a lot of data that shows that businesses will often fire older workers because they cost more money because they have more experience. And as a consequence, they earn more. And so we want to make it easier that if someone believes they've been discriminated against because of their age, 
that they can sue in a court of law and not have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Most employment contracts say that you have to go to arbitration. It's called a forced arbitration clause. And part of those forced arbitration clauses also often include a mandatory non-disclosure agreement. So we want them to be able to sue because if there's age discrimination going on for you in a business, it's likely going to be happening to other people in that business. And so we want transparency. And I'm working on this with Lindsey Graham, another conservative, Mm -hmm. because we think that older people, 15 older, are often discriminated against, even as low as 40, but certainly 15 over, very much so. And so we want to make sure that they have legal rights to sue in a court of law and not have to be silent about it. Let's talk about national paid leave. Talk to me about what your you know point of view is on it and, and how obstacles can be overcome to pass that legislation. So I believe that we should have a national paid leave plan. The simplest way to do it is to have people buy in in the same way they buy into Social Security and have their employers match it. But that's not a framework that most Republicans will agree to because they don't want to put any taxes on individuals or companies, even though it would be an earned benefit like Social Security. So what we think they might be willing to do is create a program that's funded by the federal government for states or businesses or individuals to opt into if they want to have access to a paid leave program. And then the federal government would pay the cost of paid leave for the lowest wage workers as a place to start. Because if you are a low wage worker, you most likely do not have any ability to do unpaid leave. Unpaid leave is available to all workers who are in a business that have more than 50 employees up to three months. But the lowest wage worker, they can't take unpaid leave because they need to buy groceries and they need to pay the rent. They can't afford it. So if we cover at least workers up to 40000 or 50000 or even $60,000 a year through a federally funded benefit, then states can build on that to make sure it's eligible for everybody. And so I'm working with Republicans, Bill Cassidy, on this right now as a possible starting point to allow red states that have no paid leave to start having paid leave for at least their lowest wage workers. Let's talk a little bit about technology. I feel like it's integrated into everything, including government and the military. And I'd love to hear a little bit or for you to describe a little bit about the Cyber Academy and how it's contributing to national cybersecurity efforts and what steps are being taken to really ensure its effectiveness in addressing emerging threats. So one of the biggest challenges we have is that cyber skills are so sought after that if you are a real tech genius in high school, you're going to get into college and then you'll get the big job right after college. You'll get to go to Facebook or Google and make Mm -hmm. lots of money. But we need cyber warriors who will keep the federal government secure and to protect the country against attack from Russia, China, or Iran through cyber action. And so we decided that we would create an augmentation of the GI Bill, something that says, if you're willing to serve your country in cyber, Mm -hmm. non-military, but in cyber, we'll pay for your college education. And we already have 200 universities that have been already vetted by the NSA that are eligible. There's 19 in New York State, in every region of the state, capital region, it's Excelsior University and UAlbany, Central New York, Binghamton, Moog Valley Community College, Syracuse, Utica University, Finger Lakes, RIT, Long Island, Suffolk County Community College, Hudson Valley, Mercy College, Rockland Community College, College of Westchester, Westchester Community College in New York City, Fordham, NYIT, NYU, Pace, St. John's, North Country, SUNY Canton, and Western New York, U Buffalo, all eligible. 
And we've asked the other community colleges and SUNY schools that have cyber curriculum to apply to be eligible. But if you get into one of these schools and want to serve your country for five years in cyber, you can get your tuition paid for. And it's available for application now. So if any of your viewers want to or listeners want to apply, you can go to our website. It's at gillibrand.senate.gov slash cyber academy. And it'll give you the link for the scholarship program and how to apply. We have to do a lot of stories on this because I think, A, it's a terrific opportunity for a lot of young people to, you know, garner tremendous experience and knowledge and then be able to move on or stay within the military if they want to. But I'm sure that a lot of people's apprehension of joining the military is, you know, being on the front lines. Right. And it's non-military jobs. These are all civilian jobs. And, and, you know, really jobs of the future, no matter where. For sure. I mean, once you graduate, once you're done with your five years, you'll... You've written your ticket to success. I mean, you're going to get very high paying jobs after that. That's fantastic to hear. I, I know your time is limited, but I, but I have one more question I'd love to, to go over with you, really regarding your stance on descheduling certain substances. Mm-hmm. So could you elaborate a little bit on the potential benefits as well as the challenges associated with this approach? Mm-hmm. And really, what legislative steps are you taking to advance the agenda? So a lot of states have already passed laws that allow for medical use of marijuana and cannabis, and some states have passed for all uses, recreational use included. And the challenge is, as a Schedule One drug, there's a couple of things that happen. You can't have a bank account. You can't have access to the markets. You can't prescribe it at a VA, a Veterans Administration, for just service members, veterans. It's There's real impediments. And for a lot of, particularly on the medical use side, there's a lot of medical conditions where cannabis is the best medicine. So whether you have seizure disorders, seizure disorders for children, PTSD, anxiety, glaucoma, several different types of cancers. It's one of the best treatments for symptoms and for diseases. And so we want to make it schedule three. If we can make it schedule three, then you could prescribe it. It'd be just like any other prescription medicine. You could research it. You could get access to banking. It would change a lot of things. And so we've just written a letter, the DEA calling them to, to schedule three. I support descheduling it entirely because I don't think it's the same as scheduled drugs. But if we can at least start at rescheduling it to Schedule 3, it would open up a lot of things that can't be done. You can also do, for example, you can get insurance. You don't have to pay like the highest insurance rate if you are Schedule 1 as opposed to being Schedule 3. So it just makes these businesses that we've licensed all across New York viable so they can actually stay in business. We really try to invest in equity in New York to make sure black and brown businesses that were disproportionately harmed by the enforcement of cannabis policies have a level playing field and can participate in a new market, a new industry, those businesses are about to fail because it's still schedule one. So there's an urgency. We need it rescheduled to three as soon as possible. And hopefully we'll get a vote on the Safe Banking Act, which allows for banking for the industry this year. Well, that'll have a huge impact if it changed. That's for sure. Yep. Well, Senator Joe Brown, I really want to thank you for your time and for answering a lot of questions I had and really, you know, hopefully helping our listeners understand the work that you're doing on their behalf and the impact it's going to have on them and their family. So thank you. Well, thank you, Josh. And thanks for having such a far ranging interview. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.